0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Ahmed Almazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And with us today is Dr. Noor Sobers Khan. The former director of the Agha Khan Documentation Center, which is a research center, and archive of Islamic visual culture and urbanism at MIT. And today we will be discussing uh, a newly published special issue titled Beyond Colonial Rupture: Print Culture and the Emergence of Muslim Modernity in 19th Century South Asia. And it's introduced and edited by Dr. Noor Saubers Khan, Leliyuddin and Priyanka Basu. And published uh, in the international journal of islam in asia the third issue published in september 2023 welcome to new books in the indian ocean world and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about the issue
1: not at all thank you so much for having me it's a real pleasure to be here
0: happy to have you first we would like to learn more about the editors in this case so if you can say a few words about yourself that is where you grew up how you became interested in this uh, theme and field of study and if you'd like to mention any mentors or books along the way.
1: Sure, absolutely. So I think before we dive in, I just want to also um, uh, send a huge thanks to my co-editors who worked on this uh, special edition that we're going to talk about today with me, uh, Drs. Leli Adin and Priyanka Basu, who also worked together with me at the British Library and were part of the um, big AHRC project that led to this publication. So, you know, anything I say today about... um, Print or print in South Asia really is the result of of kind of collective intellectual effort. So I just want to acknowledge that at first, um, of course, any errors remain my own, but um, this was definitely a group effort. Um, As for me, uh, let's see. So um, uh, I was born in the States and grew up there and then wound up studying in the UK. So I did uh, oriental. It was still called oriental studies then uh, for my undergraduate degree at the University of Cambridge. Um, I did Arabic and Persian and then went on to do a Ph.D. um, at the same institution. Uh, I actually, so now, I mean, you know, we're going to talk about South Asia today, but my original research, you know, really, I'm a social and cultural historian of the Ottoman Empire. So I did my PhD on the, sort of, it was a socio-cultural history of the 16th century Ottoman Empire, uh, focused on slavery and manumission. Um, And then, uh, as a result of working on archival and manuscript sources very intensively, I got very interested in uh, Islamic codicology and paleography. Um, And that was kind of my gateway drug to working as a manuscript curator. (laughs) So after I finished my PhD, um, I went to work at the British Library. My first job there was working in the Persian uh, section on the Persian manuscripts. Um, Then, gosh, after that, where did I go? I worked at the Museum of Islamic Art as a bit, as an Islamic art curator. Then I returned to the British Library in 2015 uh, to take up my position as head of the South Asia Collections, where it was a pleasure to serve for around six years, I was there, um, responsible for the South Asia collections and working with a really fantastic team of curators. So that's kind of my trajectory. Is that what you is that what you needed, uh, Ahmed? Or would you like a bit more? Um, was there anything I left out? Any more detail I can include?
0: Uh, that's perfect. Thank you for sharing that. Okay,
1: <laughs> great.
0: Let's now delve into the uh, issue. Uh, it consists of eight uh, articles, and I will read. The titles uh, of these articles and their authors. The first is printing a transregional tariqa, Haji uh, Imad Imadu Dawla Maki, who died in 1899, and Sufi contestations from uh, Tanabhavan to Istanbul, uh, written by uh, sohey Big. The second article is printing Islamic modernism, Arabic texts for Arab and South Asian Muslims in the early 20th century written by Roy Bar-Sadeh. The third is A Social Space for Religious Reform, maktab e and the Emergence of a Vernacular Print Culture in Colonial Balochistan between 1882 to 1948 by Hafiz Ahmad Jamali. The fourth is Arabic Malayalam Text at the British Library, Themes, Genres, and Production by Mahmoud Korea. The fifth is Alphabet Poems and Other Urdu Religious Booklets by Francesca Orsini. The sixth is The Garden and the Fire, The Hereafter in the Bengali Muslim Literary Imagination by uh, Ipshita Haldur. The seventh is Salacious Songs. Kimta, I hope I'm saying it right, dance, and participatory printed media in the 19th century North India by Richard David Williams. And last but not least, Chapa Putti's Some Print House Practices in Mid 19th Century Calcutta by Abjeet Gupta. So we have a wide ranging uh, themes and and geographies and you know, uh, different areas of research that relates to print culture in South Asia. And uh, about that, I'll be asking you a few questions just to introduce the listeners to these articles and their uh, broader context and arguments and contributions and interventions. Uh, But we cannot delve into all of them, unfortunately, but hopefully uh, in this uh, journey, we can learn something about them. Uh, First, in the context of colonial modernity. uh, We have a, a growing body of literature that tackles different aspects of that. And I would like to ask first about the impetus behind this issue, how it came about, and how it was organized into this issue.
1: Sure, Um, I can definitely talk a bit about that. The other thing I should mention is that, so this, this uh, special issue, which turned into a double, uh, a double uh, issue actually because, you know, we have quite a few articles in here, covering a range of geographies and languages. So this, uh, this scholarship emerged out of uh, a research and digitization project at the British Library. So in 2016, I think it was, I was lucky enough to receive a grant from the Arts and Humanities Research Council and the Newton-Babha Fund to do a big uh, research and digitization project. Um, So I was the principal investigator and my colleagues, uh, Lelia Dean and Priyanka Basu, were curators in that project. And the goal of this project was basically to... um, research and digitize and catalog and make available the British Library's quite substantial collection of early printed material from South Asia. So as some of you who are listening may know, um, the British Library, uh, as a result of, of uh, basically what amounts to colonial legal deposits. So in 1876, you have the um, it was the registration of um of books act and you had to fundamentally, uh, it required publishers in South Asia to give one copy, uh, of everything they published in South Asian languages to the British Museum to the then, um, you know, British Museum and the India Office Library. Those two collections then came together to form the collections of the British Library. So as a result of that, the institution had a very very rich, um collection of I guess what could be called gray literature I mean it was a very very wide-ranging uh selection of titles that hadn't really survived elsewhere um, because they ne- weren't necessarily deemed, worthy of collecting. So it's everything from, you know, chapbooks to, uh, you know, manuals on hygiene, to instructions for how to set up a printing press, to popular literature, instructions on how to take make talismans, uh, religious literature, reform literature, really every genre of popular printing and writing you can imagine is, is kind of captured in this collection. Um, so this project that, which was called the Two Centuries of Indian Print Project, the goal of it was to make uh, these materials more accessible. Um, So we started off working on the Bengali collections. Um, I myself am not a specialist in Bengali, but my colleagues Lely and Priyanka are. And so they did the brunt of the intellectual work uh, on that part of the collection. And we inherited a lot of the intellectual framing of this project from uh, Shaw, who was the Uh, previous head of the Asia and Africa collections um, at the British Library, uh, from Abhijit Gupta, who's also one of the contributors here, and Padmini Raimari. So we had an amazing group of contributors helping us shape um, the kind of intellectual questions we were asking as part of this project. Um, The project went on for quite some time, so from 2016 until 2021. And initially, we had an idea to organize uh, a seminar series where every, I think it was every two weeks, we would invite uh, emerging scholars as well as more established scholars to present their work on the South Asia print collections and manuscript collections in the British Library. So as a result, we managed to uh, showcase a lot of. a a wide range of scholarship on a number of languages uh, in the South Asia collections. So that was kind of the background to uh, the creation of this special edition. Um, We also did a workshop in 2018 uh, where we specifically asked these questions around the relationship between uh, the advent of print in South Asia and uh, colonial modernity and whether the introduction of print constituted Uh, you know, a kind of an epistemic rupture or whether there are elements of continuity that can be identified uh, in terms of what's being produced by way of of intellectual um uh both in terms of kind of intellectual history as well as the form and visual and aesthetics of print so that's kind of the genesis to this and that's also why we uh you'll notice as you look through the titles we we aimed for um a wide variety in terms of the languages uh, that we captured um in these articles so we have You know, some of the languages that have been very well studied, such as Urdu or Bengali, uh, in terms of print culture, but we also aimed to uh, present research on languages and geographies that are a bit less examined, for instance, um, you know, the publication of um, Persian Sufi texts in um, you know, and the relationship with Makkah and the circulation, uh, which is in, you know, Beg's article, uh, the circulation of texts on a much wider geography than South Asia, but that are fundamentally tied to questions of modernity in South Asia. Um, and, you know, as uh, Hafiz Jamali's article on print in colonial Balochistan, for instance, looks at a range of, uh, like the advent of print in a range of languages that have heretofore been neglected in scholarship. And arguably uh, the same thing with Mahmoud Kuria's article on Arabic Malayalam texts, um, which introduces uh, a corpus of texts in the British library that, again, had not really been um, examined very closely by scholars. So that's, I hope that gives you a sense of the reason for the quite wide variety and some of the questions that we asked in this uh, special issue.
0: Right. It's, it's really amazing how you brought all these uh, scholars together to think about this question. Yeah. And, Regarding the overall uh, framework of this issue, um, the issue challenges the concept of epistemic rupture. Could you please elaborate uh, on this concept and how this idea is critiqued and what nuances emerge when examining uh, continuities and changes in the Islamic knowledge economy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we were specifically looking at, at Uh, production of texts uh, by Muslims and in a Muslim intellectual uh, context in South Asia. So, gosh, a lot of nuances emerge, And I would say each... So the the thing is, I don't think we... I mean, uh, the main overarching argument that you can identify throughout all of the articles and the introduction, um, the primary argument is that obviously the question of print being introduced into South Asia isn't as simple as... um, you know, the creation of an intellectual rupture. Uh, there are a number of uh, of elements where you can say, you know, for instance, the introduction of print actually uh, gave new life to certain genres of intellectual production that we as moderns would consider perhaps to be, you know, quote unquote, enchanted. Although obviously that's a whole other discussion about, you know, what that term implies. Um, you know, at the same time, um, the introduction of print allowed for the dissemination of, uh, you know, scribal practices and the forms of lithography, for instance, um, and the dissemination of manuscript culture as well. Certainly, in the uh, in the Urdu sphere or in works that are produced in Perso-Arabic script, the introduction of print actually allowed for the proliferation of a number of uh, types of knowledge production that would be considered kind of pre-modern in the sense that they don't adhere to a kind of, you know, rationalist reformist agenda. So I would say that's one thing that you can identify in all of the papers. But what's what I like about uh, each of the articles is that each one has very much its own specificities according to the context, the the language, the, the type of production that's being examined. And I think each one um, identifies some idiosyncrasies of the type of production that they're looking at. Like I found uh, Richard Williams article particularly interesting insofar as it traces, you know, it looks, you know, at the way that this particular type of, uh, you know, uh, kind of salacious uh, song is linked to kind of Islamicate cultural practices uh, in 19th century North India, you know, and and kind of what, um, you know, how that can be seen as a rupture, but then, Um, It draws on earlier traditions and at the same time uh, becomes a kind of canonized uh, form of music by the time it reaches the Caribbean so again it plays on this idea of like okay what actually does this constitute a rupture does it constitute actually the creation of a new genre and then the creation of this new genre of of dance and music itself becomes canonized as a kind of classical form um of, of musical production so and I think each article explores these kinds of nuances um you know in their own way so uh you know for instance Hafiz Jamali's article I thought was very interesting because it looks at um the way that so his follows a slightly different argument insofar as uh, he looks at how um the introduction of print culture in Balochistan actually does promote a reformist agenda which largely adheres to in many ways um the kind of received argument of what the introduction of print culture does in colonial South Asia, you know and yet he examines how, um, you know, the introduction of different uh, forms of typography uh, might have altered uh, you know, intellectual production. So, again, I would say each article looks at uh, a very specific context and each one brings out the specificities of that context that do in some way relate to the overarching argument. But I would say um, it's it's difficult to, to generalize across all of them.
0: Right. It's, uh, it's probably unfair to ask you to synthesize and try to bring <laughs>
1: all of them yeah.
0: under one umbrella. And there is quite rich diversity in print genres and languages, as we've mentioned. And But I think it's also helpful to think about these, you know, grand narratives and how we are arguing against them. And one of the persisting one is the, the, the argument against the, you know, the Colonialism brought a significant rupture in the way uh, Muslims have been interacting with text. So, can you please delve deeper into the ways uh, the pre colonial practices and cultures of writing and reading persisted in the print landscape, especially uh, in terms of text copying, adaptation, and circulation?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I might actually, if you don't mind, to answer that question, I think I also have to draw on uh, some scholarship uh, outside of this, uh, outside of this specific special edition, if you don't mind. Because um, you have some really interesting, so you have, a, you know, a lot is kind of going on right now in the right. field of, um, uh, you know, the, the history of print, uh, and still,
0: still appreciate it. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you know, you have really excellent work uh, by Megan Robb and Pranav Prakash. Um, uh, Amanda Lanzillo is doing really interesting work on the history of lithography um, and, and kind of the relationship of, of labor actually in scribal practices to uh, the production of print. So um, and also I have a couple of articles uh, outside of this that address that exact question, the themes of which are, are definitely present in this article. But in very general terms, what I can say is that, you know, the survival of um, kind of pre-modern or, or I guess you could say pre-print um, pr- practices of intellectual production, in terms of the copying of manuscripts, in terms of, you know, uh, glossing, in terms of production of colophons, or, you know, even the way that the uh, title page will look by way of uh, illumination and the layout on the page which i would have to say mahmoud and uh, and roy's articles uh, both touch on that and uh, touch on that point actually of the the kind of continuation of very specific of, of visual tropes that are specific to islamic manuscript production in print culture so there's definitely a continuity uh in that respect many of the um, scribal practices also continue. Uh, and again, I think uh, Roy's article is really interesting. It addresses that particular point and looks at the ways that scribal practices, or not so much scribal practices, but the visual quality of print. Um, the way that it might appeal to different audiences and draw on different aesthetic registers. So he talks about the use of kind of naskh versus nastaliq, and, you know, typography versus lithography uh, to appeal to audiences that had been kind of habituated to a kind of visual engagement with texts, Um, you know, he, you know, kind of gestures at this argument that uh, a South Asian o- Muslim audience would expect a certain type of, you know, Nastaliq script, for instance. Um, and so even printed texts would would cater to this um, in order to make the text more aesthetically appealing. So that's in terms of visuals. The other thing I can say is that um, it's not in this special edition as such, but um, something I've researched elsewhere. You also have the reproduction of images as well from manuscripts, uh, often quite directly, um, almost as though the, the images and illustrations from manuscripts themselves had been Uh, kind of taken and and copied and reproduced either in engraving or lithograph. Um, So, you know, in some respects, there's a very direct visual connection between the manuscript tradition and the print and the print tradition Um, in terms of content. uh, In many cases, in many cases, you do have, um, you know, the introduction of reformist texts and and it's a completely new um, intellectual endeavor. At the same time, I would say what you also see is a proliferation of uh, whatever existed in manuscript form, right? So the full gamut of, um, you know genres of, of of Islamic intellectual production that existed in pre-modernity. You find them in print as well, and often they're very popular. So if you take things like uh, you know magical practices and you know casting spells and you know things that are not necessarily considered to be high literature <laughs> as such, and in many ways, you know, if you actually look at the the volumes themselves, they're they're kind of very practical manuals for divination. Um, you know, they just give instructions. They're not necessarily even theoretical. Uh, if you look at those, uh, and again, I mean, if we're if we're taking this category of enchantment at face value, they're definitely enchanted texts um, that indicate some kind of continuity with with premodern practices. Although that, you know, of course, put that between brackets and put a question mark next to it. But what you see is that the this type of textual production. Absolutely proliferates with the introduction of uh, lithography. So if we're looking, you know, if we're judging the popularity of a text based on how many times it gets published and how many editions it has, you'll find that, you know, this kind of text, which was obviously very kind of lowbrow and popular, um, gets, you know, reproduced widely in uh, in print and probably I would guess uh, would have circulated much more widely uh, in print form than in manuscript form, just because it's easier to produce more copies. So, I mean, this might be an example of how, uh, you know, this idea of the introduction of a rupture uh, is perhaps turned on its head. The other thing I would say is just to complicate this idea of rupture and and complicate the idea of enchantment a bit, the other thing I would say is that what I've seen is that you have the emergence of new genres as well uh, in print, which again uh, was not uncommon in manuscript either, obviously you would often have uh, authors you know, uh, basically taking uh, and adapting, anthologizing different texts uh, and putting something together to create a new treatise. But I feel like the speed at which that happens accelerates with the introduction of uh, of print in South Asia. And so you see a lot of a lot of these very popular texts that produce. They do cite their sources. They'll say, "Oh, I took you know this paragraph from this manuscript, and this chapter is taken from that manuscript." And then they kind of remix it and and put it in, and publish it in print. So you know, there's an argument to be made for continuity, right? These kind of pre-modern uh, you know elements of Islamic uh, intellectual production are finding a new life and you know proliferating and being kind of remixed into new forms. Um, so there's an element of continuity. There's also an element of rupture in that the speed at which they're being produced almost creates a new form of, of knowledge production and, and new genres of writing. So I would say you can identify elements of both, perhaps.
0: Indeed. And if I m- may add more works to that biography, I mm-hmm. recommend uh, uh, listening to my conversation with Christopher Ball, uh, where we talk about the edited volume on colophones for more than an hour, uh Arabic <laughs> specifically in South Asia, and but also the work of nile Green of uh, Islam is very useful in this regard. Um, so in thinking about the role of new technologies and networks uh on religious activities and authorities. We also come to think about uh, vernacularization of Islam and new Muslim uh, publics. And the issue grapples uh, with this uh, theme and its role in shaping new Muslim publics. Can you please say more about the significance of this uh, process and its impact on the formation of new geographies and imaginaries within the Islamic framework?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I would say that is uh, one of the major themes uh, of the special edition that we tried to bring out is this question of the ver- vernacularization of um of Muslim knowledge production and how it intersects with print. So I think, you know, there are some great examples of that in um uh, in this special edition, especially Ibshita Halder's uh, work on the uh, Bengali Muslim literary imagination, uh, Francesco Orsini, who looks at Urdu religious booklets, and um, uh, who else? I think also Suhaib Beg's uh, article is a good example of that as well. Um, and Mahmoud also, Kuria, whose, whose uh, work looks at the creation of a kind of intellectual ecumen in the uh, Indian Ocean through the production of Arabic Malayalam texts. So it's something, it's a theme that recurs throughout the, the special edition, for sure. Um, and, you know, certainly, again, I think there's an argument to be made in both respects. And I might be about to say something quite controversial. We certainly, and you know, one of the arguments that we make in this uh, special edition is that, you know, the introduction of print and lithography and the, and the proliferation of literacy and, and the proliferation of the production of text goes hand in hand with a process of vernacularization. And I think that is true to a certain degree. However, I would also say that the uh, continuation of the production of texts in Arabic and Persian also proliferates, but I would say for reasons of um, you know, disciplinary boundaries and and specific types of training, we don't look as much at Arabic and Persian texts, either in manuscript or printed form in South Asia, because of the way that South Asian studies as a field is constructed. So I would say yes and no, I would say there's an argument to be made both ways there. Uh, and perhaps, you know, the next special edition should be on that, <laughs> on this question of the, the uh, you know, continuity of these quote unquote classical languages in print in South Asia.
0: Right. There is this divide between who does Persian and who does Indic languages.
1: Right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And, and what you get trained in, depending on what, you know, right. you know which, which department you do your PhD in. But I think actually there's a big argument to be made for the continuity of Persian uh, and Arabic intellectual production in South Asia, even after the um, introduction of print, I would say.
0: Indeed. And this goes also for East Africa as well, between who studies mm. Swahili and Arabic in the Arabic script and who only works on uh, ethnographies or oral histories. Um, so, yeah, a part of it is academic training and part of it is legacies, I guess, of former scholarship. Um, so the some of the articles also tackle uh, the link between the transnational or global uh, connections mm-hmm. and how that was impacted by uh the publishing of uh, you know print materials which contributed mm-hmm. to these connections between um the newly Muslim uh, publics and their connection to the transnational Islamic Community right mm-hmm. yes. um I would like to think about that in connection to uh genres uh, mm-hmm. we have unconventional genres we have you've mentioned uh talismanry and occult sciences you also have devotional poems and salacious songs uh appearing within islamic print landscape so how do these genres challenge or expand our understanding of religious discourse and practices within the context of print culture both locally or trans transnationally
1: mm. i mean i think um you know what this special edition captures uh, is the range um, of the way that Muslim religious practices, um, you know, how diverse they are um, and, and you know, how much they differ from, uh, you know, from language to language and, and geography to geography. So, I mean, one good example of, um, well, actually, a lot of these are a good example of transnational practices. I think uh, Suheb Beg's article is an excellent example um, you know, of the circulation of, um, you know, Sufi texts from, you know, from India all the way to uh, the Ottoman Empire and, you know, the creation of a, a kind of trans-regional uh, Sufi tariqa through the circulation of text. Um, and again, you know, looking at, you know, we have an article on Sufism, we have one about reform, you have several on reformism, um, you know, one on, on dance, um, uh, and you know, sort of what are termed quote unquote vulgar songs um, as uh, you know a mode of knowledge production that extends all the way from Bengal to the Caribbean. Um, so you know and and you know certainly Mahmoud's uh, Mahmoud Kuria's article that looks at uh, the way that texts shape an intellectual community in the Indian Ocean. So I mean, I think it's uh, it's it's clear that uh, the variety of religious expression gets, captured through uh, these different textual communities um and you know hopefully we've managed to to present some of these and study and analyze them in the in the eight articles that comprise this special edition
0: indeed and, and this impacts uh, quite profoundly religious authorities right mm. uh, the proliferation of print materials impacted the traditional forms of religious authority uh would you like to mention any uh, instances where new forms of authority emerged due to the advent of print?
1: Mm, I mean, that's an excellent, uh, excellent question. Um, I have uh, well, I should probably give some some already very well documented examples of that, but I have um and I have I'm doing a bit of research on this element of um the you know, the kind of the circulation of manuscripts in South Asia and when that comes to an end, the kind of space that it opens up um for uh print and for religious reform. So I would say, you know, um in terms of the creation of new religious authorities the the kind of rise of print and and the um you know uh, the way that it allows for reformist uh, ideologies to to take space in south asia has been very well studied but i think that what we also need to think about is um the role that the circulation of manuscripts used to play uh not so much i mean before the rise of reformism in uh keeping um you know the you know, some of the, um, you know, for instance, Sufi networks alive or in keeping, uh, you know, different more local networks of, of knowledge production alive that gets, I wouldn't say erased by the, uh, introduction of print, but, but certainly altered quite widely. And I- I'm thinking of things like, um, you know, the Delhi collection, for instance, and the way that, you know, this large collection of Arabic and Persian manuscripts circulated and kept a network of scholars connected, a specific network of scholars connected in a specific geography, and how, you know, with the removal of that collection and how it was looted, and then, you know, that kind of intellectual production and the circulation of texts gets in many in many ways superseded by the production of print, which then allows for new networks and new authorities to emerge. So I think that, you know, We can, you know, we should certainly look at print and and print production, but I think we also have to look at what came before it and how it alters that pre-existing landscape, um, which has been a little bit, I think, absent from the the scholarship on print.
0: Indeed. I I remember uh, while researching at the British Library, the Delhi collection kept coming up again and again. And I was wondering, what is this Delhi collection? What is this
1: thing? Yeah. (laughs) What is it?
0: (laughs) Uh, yeah, and and then that you know uh, motivated me to go look it up and learn about his history and story, which is fascinating. Um, to think about you know sitting in London and and touching materials that have been looted from the you know uh, the Mughal palaces and libraries. So. Um, There is a lot to cover in this uh, special issue, and I highly recommend exploring the articles, even if uh, some of the listeners might not be interested in certain geographies, but the analytical sophistication that these articles uh, advance uh, is really useful uh, to transplant to other locations and think about these uh, different questions and genres and how they uh, grapple with the question of colonial modernity and print culture. So thank you so much for sharing uh, these insights from these articles. And to wrap it up, uh, I would like to ask you, who do you hope will read uh, being with colonial rupture and what sort of impact would you like it to have?
1: Well, uh, I mean, it's in many ways, it's aimed at... um... Uh, scholars of print culture, um, and specifically South Asianists. At the same time, the journal we published in the International uh, Journal of Islam in Asia has a much wider scope. So as you mentioned, we're hoping also to make like a methodological intervention in the field. So we actually hope that anyone who's interested in studying print and colonialism and the advent of modernity, kind of, you know, uh, across any geography would be um, interested in reading uh, reading our, our our special edition and the introduction, where we lay out some of the um, you know the methodological interventions that we're hoping to make. So, yeah, I mean, that's who I hope reads it. And, and, you know, anyone who's interested in these topics as well, because, you know, not only do we try to make an analytical intervention, we do look in a great deal of detail at some of the texts themselves, um, at the context in which they were produced, at the imagery, at the visual tropes, at elements of, of kind of the labor that went into producing the text. So it's a very rich um, special edition from that perspective as well.
0: Indeed, and, and the fact that Uh, some of the articles uh, study quite overlooked languages and traditions, Mm. It really opens the door for other researchers to explore the tip of the iceberg that these articles are exploring because there's an entire archive behind these understudied languages to be explored. So I'm really grateful for that. Uh, Before we let you go, there is one traditional question that we ask our authors, which is, since this is off your desk, uh, what are you working on now or hope to work on in the future?
1: Uh, OK, that's a very good question. I mean, it's it's kind of off my desk, but it will never really be off my desk <laughs> because I uh, all of the kind of research that, you know, I went into to producing it and, you know, the research that went into the large two centuries of Indian print, uh, you know, the HRC project that generated uh, this. Uh, so I'm still very much working on the topic of, of lithography, and I'm very, very interested in this question of the way that. Um, manuscript production gets uh, adapted into lithography in 19th century and early 20th century South Asia. Um, And there are some really fascinating examples of how it happens that can be traced very, very directly to very specific manuscripts. So I'm hoping to publish some of that in the near future and then just keep going with it because it's really a huge, I've I've looked specifically at the occult sciences, but I'm hoping to look at other genres as well um, and see how um, you know, uh, see how this this question of manuscript production continues into uh, into lithography. The other big question I'm interested in is this question of the Delhi collection itself. Um, you mentioned the uh, edited volume that my friend and colleague Christopher Ball produced on colophons. So I had an article in there on the Delhi collection where I argue that it's not actually the Mughal library; it's um, a collection of much smaller libraries, including possibly some of those from the milieu of Shah that get looted in 1857 and then reconstituted as a collection so i looked at you know really just a handful of uh, of those manuscripts that were all copied by one particular scribe but i'm very interested in continuing to work on that collection and and trying to understand what the impact was of know, the large scale removal of such uh, an important collection that, that, you know, circulated so widely amongst a large group of scholars, Um, you know, what the what the intellectual implications are of removing that material from South Asia and and taking it to, um, to London and the impact that would have had on, um, you know, Muslim intellectual life in 19th century Delhi. So those are the two big kind of sets of materials that I'm working with and questions that I'm trying to answer.
0: Amazing. And we look forward to learning more about uh, your project and how it unfolds. And if you would like to learn more about the scholarship, uh, Professor uh, Noor Sobers Khan, there's also a talk that you gave on YouTube about your um, work on the lithographs uh, and their contents. So I would refer the listeners to that as well. Um, Thank you so much for sharing these insights again uh, from these articles and giving us a glimpse of the wealth uh, treasured in this uh, special edition. And thank you for the listeners for tuning in to today's episode in which we explored beyond colonial rupture, print culture, and the emergence of Muslim modernity in 19th century South Asia, introduced and edited by Noor Khan, Eliuddin, and Priyanka Basu, published in the International Journal of Islam in Asia, the third issue in September 2023. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.